Ravi? Is there any left, Tony? Oh, a little bit. Okay. All right. Okay. So we're, let's see, summer mode, Life Fest. Anyone go to Life Fest? Couple? Yeah, a few. How did you enjoy yourself? Is it good? So, okay. I saw a couple of videos and pictures some of y'all posted. That's fun. Um, so we're full on summer mode. But even in summer mode, it's been fun going through this series on the fruit of the Spirit. Um, and so just a quick kind of snapshot of life inside the Fiedler house. Um, the past three days, Amy and I have been over in um, Painesville, Minnesota, an hour and a half west north of, um, of Minneapolis for an education, a home education retreat. And, um, and we got to share, and this is, this is one of the sessions that I got to do. And, um, and so that was super fun. And then we, got, we were down by the lake, and we were, this is actually the folk song. Okay. So anyway, this was, this was a fun thing to do. And, and got to share a couple times, which meant all last week was kind of writing talks leading into that. And knowing that, Sunday's always coming, as we say in our house. There was a sense of going into this and like in sitting in on sessions and listening to keynote speakers and, and it was a retreat and saturated in the gospel. I just kept thinking like maybe somebody's going to talk about the next aspect of the fruit of the Spirit and I'm going to be able to write some good notes and it's going to get some stuff going. And so the first uh, opening message was on joy. And I'm like, this is great, and wonderful things were said, but in the back of my mind, I'm going, we've already done joy. <laughs> Not helpful. And then a little bit later on, there was a session on, um, on peace, and the question on that was like, what, how, what do you live from? What space are you living from in your life? And, and the answer to that was the good place to come from is a place of peace. And I thought, that's great, but we just did peace <laughs> last week, so that's not helpful. And so uh, this is probably not at all spiritual, not at all the way you want to hear the way a message comes together for me, but I'm just letting you in on my process. And so in thinking about that, and like, it'll be fine, and I'll write on the way home. It's six hours drive on the way home. But as Amy and I were driving home and debriefing and talking and what was this and who did you talk to and how was it encouraging and how was it challenging, it occurred to me that actually one of the things I had talked about, even though the idea wasn't the aspect of the fruit of the Spirit we're on, it tracks. And so, um, so this is a little bit, this isn't my talk that I gave um, to this room, <laughs> but that was a talk on attention and failing at the habit of attention. But what we're going to look at is an element from within that that I think still applies. And you don't have to be a homeschool mom to have this apply. So this morning as we're moving through the gift of the Spirit, remember lots of parts, one gift, or fruit, <laughs> come on coffee, Lots of parts, one fruit, not lots of fruits, one fruit. Um, we see in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, Paul writing to the church in the area of modern-day Turkey. 
uh, if you've got your Bible, he says this, but the fruit of the Spirit is what? Let's say it. Help me out. Love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And this is where we've been soaking the past few weeks. Now, we're on, I don't know how you grew up, if you grew up around the church, if you didn't grow up around the church, if you grew up and you're like, I know these, but forbearance is not the translation I knew. You maybe grew up and this was patience, or maybe you grew up and this was long-suffering. And different translations translate the word, help me, Norm. That's the Greek for what gets translated, makrothromia. Translated as patience, forbearance, long-suffering, which is in abundance in our culture, right? This is one of those where we just go, you know that thing you say you see constantly, you experience constantly when you're out driving, when you're in a line it, wherever you are? No, not at all. You go to any store now and you either hear somebody complaining and making the joke, do I get an employee discount because it's self-checkout and I'm doing your job? Or you, get, you hear people upset because there's no one running the checkouts anymore. And look at all these checkout lines. And it's, it, We are in a culture that is not so great at this. And, and so this morning though, Paul speaking to the church in Galatia, Paul speaking to us, says this needs to be an element of who we are as followers of Christ. This should be reflective of who we are. Um, did I not put this in this? Oh, I didn't. Okay, so um, this is how this same passage reads in the message. Galatians chapter 5, beginning... In verse 22, we're going to go through verse 24, but this is from the message translation. Uh, Eugene Peterson translates it this way. But what happens when we live God's way? He brings gifts into our life or graces. Much the same way that fruit appears in an orchard. Things like affection for others, exuberance for life, serenity. We develop a willingness to stick with things, a sense of compassion in the heart, a conviction that a basic holiness permeates things and people. We find ourselves involved in loyal commitments, not needing to force our way in life, able to marshal and direct our energies wisely. And then he says, legalism is helpless in bringing this about. It only gets in the way. Among those who belong to Christ, everything connected with getting our own way and mindlessly responding to what everyone else calls the necessities is killed off for good. It's crucified. I love that reworking of this. So, God is working in us to bring fruit, affection for others, exuberance for life or joy, serenity or peace, or as we saw last week, um, 
this idea in Hebrew, it's shalom. In Greek, it's Irenaeus. It's this idea of everything in its right place. Everything as it should be. Everything working as it was made to work. Peace. And so last week we looked at that and what it means and how we have to, um, how we actually have an active role in pursuing peace and bringing peace and being peacemakers because of who Christ is and who he calls us to be. And the church has been incredibly good at being peacemakers the last two and a half years. Not Water City, I mean the church, capital C, in the West. We've all gotten along. We've all seen eye to eye. We've all put ourselves second. We've all put our needs behind the needs of others. We've all loved our neighbors as we, um, or wait, all of that rewound backwards. Not here, because we're perfect. But everywhere else I've been reading, the past season, and thankfully it seems like we're moving through it or whatever, I don't know, but what one of the things that's bubbled up is the reality that it's easy to be spiritual and have, have the look of being mature in faith. And still have it be all about me, my songs, my desires, my. And for when things are running along smooth, that isn't in conflict. But as soon as it gets unsettled, or one of the New Testament writers says, everything that can be shaken will be shaken. Boy, didn't that seem like it. Did you, didn't you feel like you were in a rock tumbler? You know, those things that are always at a garage sale? And you put the rocks in it, and you put the little polishing dust in it, and then you turn it on for three years? <laughs> that was this past season. And yet, even in that, there's this beauty of the hitting against each other with the dust that's in there that actually polishes and brings out beauty that you didn't see, but that was always there. And I really believe that God, if we've allowed him, and even if we've not allowed him, because God isn't, there is a polishing that happens and happened in all of our lives. And so I'm guessing you're probably not the same person you were three years ago. My prayer for us as followers of Christ is that we have moved more and more into the likeness of Christ who did not think it below himself to step out of heaven to take on our frail humanity that we might come into right relationship with the Father. And so, back to the notes, Jay. So that's the stuff from the past. See, it's interesting. This word, uh, makrothromia, is... Um, only in the New Testament 14 times. Paul, the apostle, writing in the epistles, um, references this idea of peace or long-suffering, or the NIV says for, forbearance. I love, actually, when the modern translations use a word for, they could have just said peace, and that would have felt very NIV, but forbearance. That's a very other word. In 
I think it's appropriate that way. It's not the right way, the right translation. That's silliness. But it's, it's, a, good, it's a good word for us because it's an other. In, in fact, Jesus himself didn't even teach using this word. Out of all of the things that Jesus said, out of all the parables, the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon in the Plain, the whole of it, Jesus doesn't use the word that gets translated here, peace or forbearance. Not because it wasn't important, but instead of teaching this, Jesus embodied this. And then what happens is Paul is transformed by the life and work of Jesus through the Holy Spirit. And he takes this theme and he says, look, inspired by the Holy Spirit, this needs to be a mark of who you are. Now in church world, if you've been around for 10 minutes, you know the joke. Don't pray for patience because bad things are going to happen in your life. Right? It's what we say. It's right there. It's usually right around don't pray to be a missionary or don't pray to go to a place you don't want to go because that's where God will send you. Like those two jokes go hand in hand. They're in new minister handbooks. You've got to do them. But the reality is most of us aren't great when it comes to forbearance or patience or long-suffering. Any of you, and, and this is the wrong way to do this, right? Moses is attributed as writing the first five books of the Bible, and in one of the first five books of the Bible, it says Moses was the most humble man who ever lived. Moses wrote it. I don't know. But here's, so here's the question. On a one to ten... How well do you do, or how, how natural, let's do it that way, so it's not a value. How natural is it for you to be in a place of peace or forbearance or long-suffering in a normal week? Let's use a week that's a little longer than a day. Maybe one to ten's wrong. Let's just do a one to three. Well, that's not fair. Everyone, oh, I'm a three. How about a one to four? Anyone, you just crush it? Like this is a natural on some, it is. Some of these areas of the fruit of the Spirit, either it's been modeled in your life or through the process of sanctification that God has grown in you. And, and that isn't necessarily a source of pride because Paul says it's not that I would boast in myself, but that I boast in Christ, in his working, and so it's not that you're amazing, but some of you, this is a thing that God has been growing in you and you've been aware of, or it's a thing that you knew, just this is not who I am, and God, I need you to grow this in me. I've read all the books, I've listened to the podcast, I've listened to the sermons, and it's just not, and so God, I need you, I need you. And God's answered that. In, or is answering that and growing it in you. And that's awesome. In fact, that's a thing to be celebrated, especially in a culture where we're quick on everything and do it right now, and if you don't get to the point, I'm done with you, and I'm going to flip the station, or I'm going to click the link, or I'm going to pull out my phone and see if something else is a little bit better. 
in the mark of a life of a Christ follower is to be different. Now, this morning is not about me beating you up. If you're like, you know what? I'm not good at patience. I'm going to be honest. This is an area of my life that is, is it's a struggle. Part of it's my ADD. And so, like, get to the point, man, or I'm daydreaming. But part of it, too, is along with the way my brain works is it gets to stuff fast. And so if it takes someone a little while to get to where they're going, my brain's already there, and then it's like, I'm there, I'm gone, I'm over somewhere else. Which isn't necessarily bad or good, it's just the way God did my head. And some of you are the same way, but if you're the same way, the thing you struggle with then is the patience to not be frustrated with somebody who can't get the idea there or isn't grasping the thing. And so there's some times where I'm talking with Amy and the worst part of me comes out. It's usually when she asks me something about the computer. How do I do whatever? Control P or cut and paste the, and then it's like, oh my word, are you even a human? And maybe you know what that is, and maybe you're appalled that that's who I am. But it's an area that Jesus actually died to bring me into something better. And so this isn't about beating you up if you're bad at patience. We all are. This also isn't license if you've been shrapneled by somebody who's bad at patience. It's also not license if you're bad at patience to hand grenade others. But some of us, some of some carry this hurt from somebody who was hurt or somebody who didn't and couldn't. And into that space, I want to say that God can heal. Maybe not instantly the way it would be awesome with the television preachers, but God can heal. And that healing might mean praying and studying scripture and talking to a counselor and journaling and praying some more and releasing and forgiving and then rinsing and repeating. But the beauty of it is, is that God wants to draw us into a wholeness, which is shalom, which is peace. And that is connected in here with this. And so, um, remember in the first movie, or the first Avengers movie? Anyone see that one? That was super fun, right? If you haven't seen it, no. Most of the room's like, no. Okay, well, let me tell you a story. Once upon a time, there were these heroes of the earth. <laughs> so in the, in the first, I won't spoil it for you. There's bad guys and good guys, and they win, the good guys. But there's this scene in it where the, the main villain, Loki, the mythical Norse god of mischief, comes and he's like going to impose his will on everyone. 
And there's this funny scene that gets replayed in two different ways, and, and it's the idea of a boot in an ant. And he's like, a god, he's saying, doesn't bend to the ant, just imposes his will. That's, that's a good idea, uh, not a good idea, it's a good representation of, of pagan mythology. The gods do what they want. We hope they don't notice us. Because if they do, we're their playthings. It's Greek mythology. It's North, Norse mythology. It's so much of, uh, of, the, of the mythology of the ancient world. In fact, it's the mythology of the modern uh, American deism as well the non-connected to the salvation work of Christ mythology, the one that there's a God, and as long as I'm living okay, God's going to do good things for me. And if something bad's happening, then maybe I've done something bad, so i got to get it right with God. It's not actually too much different than pagan mythology of the ancients. It's just one God instead of the pantheon. That isn't Christ. Jesus may not have taught a lot about patience, but Jesus embodies this. He's the fullness of the truth of Scripture. He is what we need to see when we're trying to define what patience is. It's easy to take one passage where Jesus goes into the temple. If you've been around the Gospels, you know this story right before or right at the beginning, depending if you're reading John or the other Gospels. But Jesus goes into the temple, and he sees some guys having a, a, a twisted bake sale. And they're getting in between uh, those who are poor because they're money changers and they're sellers of, of doves and pigeons, the sellers and the money changers. If you had wealth, you brought your own sacrifice. If you didn't have wealth, you changed your money to give for the temple tax, and then you bought the small, low thing and offered that as a sacrifice, which God never downplayed, never said this is a second-class offering. He said, this is actually a way for the poor to have access into this, which is very different. And it's one of the reasons I think Jesus was so frustrated and upset because it was the poor and the foreigner that had someone in between in working the system through greed and manipulation to be a barrier between them and a house of worship. But we read Jesus flipping the, chair, or the tables in the temple and we're like, Jesus was a John Wayne kind of guy. But everywhere else, Jesus runs into stuff, even with the Pharisees. He never punches them in the face. He always meets their point, either their point of pain or their point of pride. And he draws them to the Father or he shows them how they're missing the Father. And in that, he demonstrates such incredible patience. Even though there are times when he says, oh, you of little faith. 
Or how could you do this? Or are you even paying attention? And they're like, what? Just like us. But he doesn't kick them out of the boat. He calms the storm, and then he kicks them out of the boat and travels alone. It is not how the story goes. And so Jesus embodies this patience, and not just in a like perfect way, oh, wouldn't that be great? So this is the bit that is me taking from my talk. Um, if you've got a phone and wanted to QR this, I didn't get a chance to print off this picture study. So, um, or at least legitimately, this is what I was grabbing off my thing. If you don't have a phone and you don't want to QR this because it's the mark of the beast or something, I don't know, um, you don't have to. I've got 15 of these, no more. And so if you can QR or if you can on your phone, go to unpublishedtrailguide.com slash overdone. That's, that's where I have this. I should have put it on the church one. This is on my private one. This is where my homeschool talks live. If you want to go, what does Jason do on his side hustle? It's this, and it makes no money. <laughs> So, and if you don't want, who, okay, some are like, I'm not doing any of this. Fine, you're about to miss out for a couple minutes. But I've got a few of these if you want, so I can at least have it. Does anybody want some of these? Oh, the kids with no phones. I love it. I'm going to put a picture on. I know some of you are trained to have a picture, but it's not going to be good. So, anyone else? Okay, I'm only teasing. Normally, we print these for real. So do you want one? Okay. Sorry, it is just a black and white, but it's just a um it's just a sketch, so it's you're not really missing much. Does anyone else want one? Okay. There you go. I got one. Who else? Oh, Amy. Okay. There you go. All right. Everybody got one? If you need one, I got a couple left. If you want it, there's four right here. All right, here's how this works. Take a look at it. Study it, look at the details, what things do you notice? So the questions are, what do you notice? What does this remind you of? And what do you wonder? And if you really wanted to do just the screen, here it is. That's, that's what I meant. It's not going to do it justice. So I'll give you two minutes. Now, if this was an official Charlotte Mason gathering, I would make you flip it over, and but you can keep it up. They won't take away my membership. Um, what did you notice? There's no right answer. I'm not looking, this isn't a trick. I'm not looking for you to give me my right answer. What did you notice? The man who's seated is tied up. Good notice. Everyone around the man looks pretty fancy. Yeah, good notice. What else? Two women in the foreground? Nice. They may or may not be discussing them. Yep, what else? Yeah. Oh, nice. Look out for Norm. <laughs> yep. What else? What'd you notice? What'd you notice? 
Mm. Right. She's engaging this different. She's, yeah. Mm. Mm. Good. I like it. Anyone, your Latin's good or your Greek or German's good? Anyone know the scene? Got a guess? Remember, no right answer. I just. Out of volume, Norm. Yep. Okay. If you've got your Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 20. This is a passage that is not easy and super relevant. Fun part in talking to the homeschool crew because I said things like, if this was a Sunday morning, here's what we would do. And this is what we're doing now. And I just knew, like, some of these folks, I'm about to mess with their head and their theology and their understanding of God in a really good way. Not because I'm amazing, but because we have a very safe God, Hobby Lobby version. And that's not necessarily the creator of heaven and earth. So Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 22, we're near the end of Paul's third missionary journey. He's been, which is actually, it's not a triumph travel or a like, I've done it, I'm an amazing missionary at the end of my, and we're going to, this is actually Paul and he's been taking collection for the poor church of the inner city in Jerusalem. And and, and doing other things, correcting and teaching and growing, but, but he's, he's being compelled, we're going to read, to go back to the city of Jerusalem. So Acts chapter 20, verse 22 says, And now, compelled by the Spirit, Paul speaking, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. The context that he's saying is in the city of Ephesus. The church in the city of Ephesus is one of the churches that Paul, well, he loved them all. The way we love all of our kids and have no favorites. But he really liked Ephesus. <laughs> because God did some really cool things in the city of Ephesus. And, this, and the church in the city of Ephesus had very meaningful and significant things that were happening out from that. And so speaking to these folks that he had spent a few years with, probably, he's saying to them, I'm heading back to Jerusalem. I'm compelled by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. But every time I'm thinking about that and every town I'm in, it's like the Spirit's warning me that there is imprisonment and there's hardship to come. Fast forward, book of Acts, chapter 4. They're traveling to Jerusalem, and on their travel to Jerusalem, we have this. We sought out the disciples there, which is in the entire, and stayed with them seven days. Remember, they're on their way to Jerusalem. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Which this is an easy sentence, except for the beginning of it. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. 
Paul, Acts 20, says he's compelled to go to Jerusalem, even though it's possibly hardship in prison. Here he's in the city, and there's they're meeting with the disciples, and in through the Spirit, a word of wisdom or a word of prophecy or something, the Spirit is leading them to say, don't go. And then just a little bit later in that chapter, we have this, and this is your scene. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. They're not south of Judea. Remember, this is geographically. It's, it's elevation down. So they came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, The Holy Spirit says, In this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we, we being Luke and everyone else in the crew, says we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So Paul goes, you're right, let's turn around. No. Verse 13, then Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am, I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And when he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. And after this, we went on, up on our way to Jerusalem. Here's the question that sits with no good answer. What do we do with a text like this? The thing we usually do is we break it apart and we don't connect those. What we usually do is here, listen to the warning of people who might be in your life that the Holy Spirit is speaking through saying difficult things are coming and then listen to them and adjust your life based off of them. Or we do the beginning of the text and we say, are you living in such a way that God has a hold of you that he can compel you to go to a place that may be difficult? And we split it and we make it applicable that way. But the reality is, is in the exact same room, the Holy Spirit says to one person, don't do this. Tell him not to do this because this is what's coming. And to another who has been compelled by the same Spirit says, I know what's coming. What do we do with that? I'm hopefully not being a bully and pushing us into a question we didn't realize we needed to have, but th this, is, this text is here. I remember the first time we went through this, and it was here at Water City, it was a number of years back, and I was foolish, and I said, you know what, I think Paul might have been out of God's will. And it was just like, just that. Do you like my lead balloon? Boom. Because the idea of Paul being out of God's will, no way. And yet the Spirit was speaking. They weren't manipulating. This wasn't one of those shiny prophets who says what they want so that you'll click on their link and send them some money. They're inspired by the Spirit. And Paul is also compelled by the Spirit. And so you know what? I'm not going to answer this easy for us. I think there's an answer in this. And I think the answer in this, but it's not the easy answer in this, is that God is God. And 
See, my American version of God always leads me into peace and prosperity, even if I'm not a word of faith person. And Francis Chan says this, I use this quote all the time, but he says, our greatest fear should not be of failure, but of succeeding at the things in life that don't really matter. This should be our greatest fear, not failing. Talk to a businessman who's read a few business books, and they say the place you grow in business is through your failure, not through your success. Your success probably has very little to do with you. Your failure is probably mostly you. So are you going to learn from that? And I go, well, that's business stuff, not church. Move along. <laughs> and this is where the homeschool stuff spills in, but this Victorian teacher of educators, she said this, we talk of lost ideals, but perhaps they're not lost, only changed. See, when our ideal for ourselves and for our children becomes limited to prosperity and comfort, we get these very likely for ourselves and for them, but we get no more. I know you don't know Charlotte Mason or haven't given your life to her philosophy of education. So that's just some old lady. And that's fine. But I think this is so incredibly true in our culture and even inside a lot of church conversations. But the thing we aim at is comfort and prosperity. And listen, we live in the West. If you're a hard worker and willing to do what you need to do and take care of what you need to take care of and be mostly ethical, you're probably going to be comfortable in life and prosper. But if those are your ideals, you may get that and miss the deeper of life. Jesus doesn't say, I came to give you life of comfort and prosperity. He says, I came to give you abundant life. And in the same conversations with the same group of guys, he says, you're going to suffer. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to go through struggles. You're going to go through hardships and trials. They're going to hate you worse than they hated me. They're going to hate you just like they hated me. Well, that was just the disciples, because that was back in the day. But now that it's a Christian culture, none of us should feel that kind of a thing. And we've neutered the message of Jesus. It isn't about your comfort or prosperity. It's not about mine. And listen, I'm not a glutton for pain so excited to have no prosperity and no comfort. That's not the point. The point of patience, long-suffering, and forbearance is that in being shaped in the likeness of Christ, we are obedient into the places that he calls us. And God is glorified in your suffering. Let me say it again. God is glorified in your suffering. But we've latched on to a possible American theology that says, I don't need to suffer because I have good health insurance or I have a 401k or I can vote in my party or I can fill it in. You may get comfort and prosperity and miss the deeper thing. This is what Jesus says when he says, what good is it for a man to gain the world and lose his soul? And so this isn't a like, you stink and I'm amazing. This is Jay speaking to Jay and you get to hear. 
because I have a lot of nights when I'm going to bed and I'm wondering how that bill's going to get paid and if this is going to happen and whatever else that I'm going, but God, like, we're sacrificing a lot for you as a family. Like, I'm in ministry. This should be working out. And that American idea of comfort and prosperity has slipped in instead of the reality of God is glorified in my suffering. Do you believe it? For real, do you believe it? Because when we do, we live different. We don't have time for this, but if you've read 2 Corinthians, Paul's, uh, one of Paul's letters to the church in Corinth, it may be his third, it may be his second, they might be combined. There's some nerdy Bible stuff we could talk about with that. But he writes to them and he says, and he's being, uh, I love Paul, he's being so sarcastic here because they're ashamed of him. Because he's not flying in the ritzy jets like the rest of the teachers of his day. He's not flashy. He doesn't have a lot of Instagram followers. His Twitter account, he hasn't even posted anything in years. And yet into that space of, of celebrity teachers, which has always been there, just with different platforms, Paul says, listen, we put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry won't be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way in great endurance, in troubles, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots, in hard work, and in sleepless nights, and in hunger, hey, in purity, in understanding, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, and in sincere love, in truthful speech, and in the power of God, the weapons of righteousness, in the right hand, and in the left, through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown, dying yet we live on, beaten yet they can't kill us, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. What's he saying? These are the standards that people hold up as the things of being in the center of God's will and being blessed. And he says, okay, fine, but we're doing all this other stuff for the sake of the gospel and for you. And in that, God is glorified. God is glorified. So child of God, I don't know what you carried in for your image of God. If it's the great American mythology of deism, that God blesses those who work hard that is in conflict with the gospel. Because God doesn't give the stamp of approval to those who do good works to get closer to him. He saves those who say, I can't do this on my own. My works are rubbish. My best days are awful. And I need you my atoning sacrifice, Jesus. And so for us, we wrestle with that. What does it mean to serve a God of love who also moves folks towards danger? Well, that was just the Apostle Paul. Luckily, that's none of us. And yet, the story arc of the history of church and even back through the story of God's people is one of God moving them toward risk, in danger, 
and even suffering. Why? Because his fruit being produced in us and through even those situations is love and joy and peace and forbearance, long-suffering. Do I want this for any of you? Am I speaking a curse over you? No. No. But my desire for us as people of faith is that we would boldly move into the places God is sending and calling us and endure what needs to be endured, not for our good, but for his glory. And our good comes along with it. In Ephesians 4, Paul writes some stuff about that. You can look at it. Last thought. In all of this enduring and unknown, the, the variable in this is anxiety. And so anxiety is this. It's the natural human response to uncertainty. Anxiety is the natural human response to uncertainty. Now, I know we live in an interesting time, and especially post-COVID, anxiety has become just from being socially awkward to like clinically diagnosed as, a social, as anxiety disorders. Or we've heard the word anxiety disorder, and we've picked up that label, and we've made it our own. I have an anxiety disorder. I can't go into that group. I couldn't possibly go to church with a bunch of people. I have an anxiety disorder. Anxiety is not a sin or a character flaw. Anxiety is not a sin or a character flaw. I'm going to say it again. It's not. I know Philippians 4. We're going to unpack it. Anxiety is a natural response to uncertainty. How do you know it's not a sin or a character flaw? Because Jesus experienced anxiety in the garden. He had uncertainty about what was about to come on the cross. He had uncertainty if that was truly the only way. And he communicated with the Father about that. He felt anxiety to the point of bleeding sweat, which is an actual thing that can happen. Look it up. WebMD it. It's for real. And so Jesus feels uncertainty to the point and he doesn't avoid it. And he doesn't give himself a Jesus talk. He moves through it. Now, this is a bit taken from a podcast called Good Faith. It's episode 33, and it's called Feeling Overwhelmed by the News Cycle. And they talk about anxiety, despair, and weariness. And to the room of educators, I'm like, here's a QR code. You should listen to it. They'll say something way better than what I can say. And I can give you that QR code after. It's fine. It's so good. See, if anxiety was a sin or a character flaw, then it's weird that Jesus would experience that. But what about Philippians 4? Rejoice in the Lord always, and I say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Don't be anxious about anything, Paul says to the church in Philippi. But in every situation, you know this, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, 
which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Listen, I'm not downplaying anxiety or making light of it. The church's response to those who are anxious is pray it away. In secular culture's response to anxiety is medicate it away. And medication works, and prayer works, and the combination of both works. But if your goal in life is to avoid uncertainty, when you find yourself in a place of uncertainty and know that you're beginning to get anxious, you're going to get more anxious because you're feeling the anxiety, which then leads you to more anxiety. And to the room full of teachers and to parents in the room, your job is not to remove uncertainty from your kids' lives. It's not. If you carry all of the uncertainty that they will face, especially as they get older as teenagers, if you remove all of the things that could make them anxious, you are crippling them to be able to feel the natural response to uncertainty and move through it. Do we want to carry it for them? Yeah. But we can't. And so what do we do? We walk with them through it. We say, you can do it. We pray with them. We pray for them. We do the same things hopefully someone else is doing with you as you are in uncertainty. Now listen, again, I'm not downplaying an actual anxiety disorder. I'm not. But for so many of us who make the life goal to avoid uncertainty, we are missing that a fruit of God's working in our life is long-suffering and forbearance and patience. When do you need that? It's not when you're certain. It's when you're uncertain. When you don't know how it's going to work out, when you don't know what's going to happen, when you know that God is good, but you just can't see the story playing out, you need forbearance, Patience, long-suffering. Now, this is true. This is true. This is God's word. It is true. But this isn't math. This isn't do two parts this, one part that, and you're going to get a nice cake. This is Paul saying, look, and we saw this in 1 John, it's not exactly the same. I hope I'm not torturing this text. But remember in 1 John, says Paul says, don't remain in sin. And I think this is the same. We could have a cup of coffee and process this out. But humbly I put this out. Don't remain in a place of anxiety. It's not who you are. It doesn't define you, child of God. I'm not trying to burden you with just work your will to get out of it. But if you've experienced that anxiety, I don't know what's going to happen for my kids. I don't know what's going to happen with my marriage. I don't know what's going to happen with that test result I'm waiting on. Enter it. 
and move through it. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of uncertainty, I will fear no evil. You are with me. I'm not downplaying prayer. I'm not downplaying meds. Pursue those. But know that that is not the defining thing of who you are, child of God. God at work in your life is love and joy and peace forbearance. And more we're going to get to. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this moment. Thank you for this church. Lord, thank you for these lives. God, to move into this place, maybe we didn't see coming, but Holy Spirit work. We're just kids in a great big room that we don't know how everything works. And some of this stuff in the room, it's wounded us. And some of the stuff we've picked up before we should, and some of the stuff has gotten tossed at us. We're just kids. But you are our good Father. If we ask for bread, you don't give us a snake. If we ask for bread, you don't give us a stone. And so we ask. And you say you'll give even the Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, I pray that you would work. God, if your spirit is stirring something in a heart, let there be resolve to act on it. Lord, if there's someone who's just carrying some junk, I pray that you would lighten that or that you would even take it. God, thank you for the science that shows us what chemicals do in our brain and how meds can help. And God, thank you for the mystery of moving into that place that you call us to give to you the things that make us anxious in prayer. And God, that you do say, not a promise, like if we don't have it, we've done something wrong, but you say there is a coming of a peace that passes all understanding. And Lord, for some, that may be a thing that is elusive until resurrection. And so in the meantime, may we be like Paul, who says, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm compelled to move toward that. Yeah, I might be bound, but this isn't about me. It's for others and for your glory, God. Lord, thank you for this day. Do a deep work, I pray, and continue to do it. In your name, amen.